This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We began the week on Thanksgiving Monday with our Zoomer squad, who had a first opportunity to react to a new package of measures for long-term care. It was during the week before long-term care minister Rod Phillips announced $270 million to hire 4,000 personal support workers and nurses by the end of March. That same week, Libby interviewed Rod Phillips for Fight Back, and Minister Phillips also had a phone meeting with Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Policy Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Libby spoke with both David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer for CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder about how that phone call went. Minister Phillips called me. Uh, we talked about the announcements that were in the uh, uh, that were in the speech from the throne and his plans for uh, the next uh, next year. I was able to give him some. Uh, feedback from CARP and what our members are thinking, and we agreed that we would meet uh, in person or at least in a Zoom call for longer than the 15 minutes we had last week uh, to go over our recommendations in detail. So uh, what did you think about what he announced? Well, it was it was uh, certainly better news than we've had uh, for a long time, and I appreciated uh, his uh, honesty in terms, we were talking, for instance, about the increases needed in long-term care staff. Uh, we talked about uh, there being 9,000 in the pipeline at the moment and and uh, his hope that uh, at least 4,000 of them would be trained and in place uh, by next spring. He also admitted, and, and frankly, I was pleased to, to uh, understand that he had a good grasp that the biggest problem isn't hiring new people, it's retention, it's keeping them. And he talked about uh, a focus in his ministry to make sure that that, uh, uh, the situation was such that people would want to stay with the jobs after uh, after the head of now he didn't go into detail in that I, I hope he will when we talk again but it was good to know the minister understands it's, it means much more uh, to keep people than just to hire them for for a month or two David you know it's interesting uh, I was talking to the head of uh, SEIU healthcare which is one of the big unions and this came as a bit of a surprise she said well all those new graduates they come in and they last an average of 3 days that was pretty shocking well it is shocking it is shocking but i think it also speaks to um the minister's apparent awareness of what it takes to keep them because as i understand and i got debriefed by Bill afterwards that it isn't just the hourly uh, wage, and um, well, that's very, very important, but how much do you know about the working conditions? How prepped are you uh, for those working conditions? And I think part of the minister's plan is that the training is going to include more uh, on-the-job exposure before you get turned loose with your certificate and then you hit the real world. 
And if that is true, then it, it does speak to some, you know, much needed realism and problem solving uh, in the ministry rather than just, um, you know, rhetoric. Uh, you know, David, uh, one of the things that came across loud and clear, even, even from this government's critics, is like it's a big improvement over the previous minister, of course, Carp Lobby, to have her taken off the file. Well, we did, and she was, and significantly, too, and below the radar, they also replaced the deputy minister of long-term care. And we had run some commercials way back when talking about the salaries paid to the to the bureaucrats and, you know, uh, what were they doing? And one of the things I find encouraging right now, and of course, it'll all the proof will be ahead of us, but they do seem to be talking about measurable uh, performance standards, uh, very focused commitments to do very specific things. Rather than broad, uh, or, you know, not just broad sweeping declarations of good intent. And I think that's maybe the sea change because it is a big beast to tame and Phillips can't come in and wave a magic wand and make everything good overnight. But if they're focusing on concrete, achievable steps that can be measured and can be evaluated, uh, you know, in the future as they go forward, I think that's a very healthy, a much healthier climate to get things done than just, you know, ringing declarations of uh, desire, as it were. David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. This past holiday Monday was also a time to catch up on sleep, but many of us physically have trouble sleeping. Insomnia is a challenge, a problem that has affected many more people because of the pandemic. There's even a name for it, Corona-somnia. Fightback gathered a panel of experts to get some tips on how to get better sleep. Here are Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, Toronto-based family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research, and Dr. Mayer Krieger, author of Mystery of Sleep and professor at Yale University. Very, very early on in the pandemic, um, at least in, in North America, even before there were like any cases, people were already complaining of difficulty sleeping and, and you know, they called it pandemic uh, insomnia at that time. There were also pandemic um, uh, nightmares. And so people were having nightmares and trouble sleeping from the very beginning of the pandemic. And it really continues to this day, although things have changed a little bit. Dr. Gorfinkel, are you seeing this in your practice here in Toronto? Coronosomnia has been a major problem right from the onset of the pandemic. And why is that? People are tremendously fearful. And they're fearful still, even though they're vaccinated because of the potential for breakthrough infections. They ask the question, and reasonably so, what happens if I go get my groceries and get COVID-19? It's a serious issue. And then on top of it, we have a whole nother group, those who have been infected with COVID-19 and despite having trouble with sleeping, are super fatigued the next day. So do we have easy solutions for these? We do not. So 
I would say coronasomnia is one, it's, it's a, a small word for what's actually a tremendously large problem. I'm uh, wondering about the regular tips for sleeping. So um, l- let's start with, for instance, there's, a, it's said that if you can't sleep and, and it's gone on for a while, like 20, 25 minutes, get up and get out of bed, Dr. Krieger. Is that a good one to start with? Yeah, uh, that's a very good one to start with. Um, and, and the reason for that is that if people are lying in bed, not sleeping, they get frustrated, angry, and they just won't fall asleep. And they, um, and, and so the act of trying to fall asleep in those patients and those people may actually, um, um, you know, it, it, they'll get wired as, the, as they're trying to fall asleep. And it becomes a conditioned reflex where they just won't fall asleep if they continue to just lie in bed and, and, and sort of fume about not sleeping. So that is a very, very good hint. What would you like to leave us with? I'm giving you 20 seconds each, starting with Dr. Gorfinkel. My main message, be as proactive as you would with diet or exercise. Ultimately, what gets measured gets managed. So it is important to take a pen and paper out. What time are you going to bed? What time are you going to getting up? Be consistent. That makes a big difference. And avoid alcohol and sedatives because they sedate. They don't put you to sleep. And Dr. Krieger? Well, I think the most important thing is that people need to make sleep a priority. Um, and if they're having trouble sleeping and it's interfering with their life or the lives of the people around them, they may need help. And there's help around the corner, usually in the sleep clinic, where they're used to seeing patients that are having uh, sleep issues. By the, by the, you know, if someone's had a problem for years and years and years with their sleep, obviously what it, the things that they have tried have not worked. And so we commonly see people that, you know, come into clinic and they've tried all the sleep hygiene stuff and it hasn't really helped a whole lot. Um, and they may need extra help in learning how to fall asleep or they may have a sleep disorder such as sleep apnea, which is incredibly common and does present, especially in women, with insomnia. Dr. Mayer Krieger, author of Mystery of Sleep and professor at Yale University, and Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, Toronto-based family physician and founder of Prime Health Clinical Research. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, eight months until the provincial election, and already it's getting nasty. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We just finished with a federal election, and now it feels like Ontario's provincial election campaign is underway, even though the vote 
is not until June. The governing progressive conservatives are running campaign-style ads portraying Premier Doug Ford as someone who says yes to opportunities while making NDP leader Andrea Horvath out to be indecisive and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca as a crony of ousted former Premier Kathleen Wynne. The New Democrats are also running negative ads against Doug Ford as a premier who's not for the little guy, as he always says, but for big business and his rich buddies. In addition, the new long-term care minister, Rod Phillips, has made a string of announcements most related to new beds in various Ontario communities. How big of an issue will long-term care be in the coming provincial election for the Ford Tories and their bid for re-election? Libby asked this of our Tuesday strategy panelists, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. I think they feel the pressure of delivering on this and whether um, they, I certainly think they will be held to account uh, for what happened in the initial waves of the pandemic in long-term care and some of the comments that were made and then also some of the promises that were made. Um, I, I do think it's something that the government rightly feels that they need to be held accountable for, and, and I think that they will be. John, uh, sort of this is a, a chicken or an egg question. I mean, one of the things that I heard from stakeholders is that dealing with Rod Phillips night and day from Marilee Fullerton. So was it just that she was less competent at this or was it that, um, you know, Ford uh, didn't listen to her as much? Well, and I think we've we've talked about it here before too, Libby. And your, your organization has been, um, uh, or Carp. I should say, Carp, Carp has been one of those organizations that was pretty vocal in uh, in ensuring that Marilee Fullerton was was no longer the minister of long term care, given some of the some of the mixed messages that was going on whilst she was the minister. And we knew that once the premier put in Rod Phillips, we knew it was going to be a game changer or a channel changer because we knew that Rod had a little bit more experience with respect to. Um, um, uh, the politics of the issue also had a better relationship with the premier, um, but also d- dealt with finance uh, as the finance minister prior to him being let go uh, in cabinet. So he knew where the money was, how to be able to deal with cabinet on, on issues that involved money. But all that to say, uh, I'm just glad that beds are being created here. And I think the announcement today with 256 beds, specifically in this Vaughan area, um, uh, announcement today was was positive. It's part of what, I think, 260, 2,700 Beds alone in the York region, um, which which is great, and and, and and Charles speaks to the to the fact that the previous government had made a commitment as well. But I think we're actually starting to see the action now. You know, this this long term care problem goes back to a number of governments ago. It's not just you know this is we're talking about potentially ten, fifteen, twenty years of neglect. Uh, and I think the one thing that um, that we have all learned through this pandemic was how woefully ill-equipped uh, not only staffing at long-term care facilities, but the facilities themselves. So the fact that we're actually starting to see some action, I think, is good. I think it's one of the promises that the Premier made. And you'll see that, to your question about whether or not this is a election issue, I think it will be. I think it's one of those things that the opposition will, will try to throw at the Premier. And I think the more that he's able to say, hey, look, you guys have talked about it for 15 years. We've actually done it. I think the more people will be appreciative of the fact that we're actually getting beds uh, and homes uh, so badly needed in Ontario. 
Right. Uh, but, you know, one of the things, uh, and that's the mantra, and it's true, that is a very long-standing problem. But the one thing I wonder if it will be forgiven is, you know, after the first wave, everybody knew a second wave was coming. And this government did not even try to do the things that were needed that, for instance, were done in Quebec. Charles? To their credit, I mean, they recognized that they were caught from, they were caught flat-footed. And unlike what happened in Alberta, they did take some, made some decisions. But I'm looking at other countries around the world that have taken the similar steps to inoculate their, their population and take more military-type strategies to fight this as a war, to get it done. And I'm specifically talking about Portugal that was cited as one of the countries that did well. But, but Ontario's results have improved since. But notwithstanding, we have to be vigilant. And some of the steps that are being taken are necessary. And he's getting beat up by by some of his, his uh, base who are opposing some of those steps, which is interesting. Um, but notwithstanding, uh, uh, they've they've taken some corrective action, but it worries me that it's always a reflection of the bad decisions that were made previously. In other words, he he's open to changing his changing his mind, but I wish there would be more preparation prior in order to enable those changes to happen more. Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Just before the long Thanksgiving weekend, the Ford PCs announced that theater and big sports venues could revert to full capacity. But this decision has angered and frustrated restaurant owners who say the government is discriminating against them and favoring owners of sports teams and big theaters. On Tuesday, long-term care minister Rod Phillips was asked about what seems to be an unfair policy. He agreed that there are no capacity limits in big venues, but said that people still have to physical distance which is simply not true since fans in the stands are sitting shoulder to shoulder. Fightback gathered some panelists from the restaurant industry who were not happy about being left out of the decision. Here are Selena Blanchard, owner of Lambretta Pizzeria in Toronto, Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs, and Tony Ellenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. The industry is furious and ready to step into a revolt. Totally disappointed, totally frustrated, and capacity restrictions have been lifted in those venues, in those arenas that have thousands of people that, by the way, take their masks off to um, go to concession stands and eat and drink. And here we are. We have rooms, hospitality rooms, that are easier to control, easier to manage. I think the vast majority have proved it since March of 2020, and especially implementing the vaccination program, and we're struggling to be noticed. This is a big issue in the industry. Uh, Larry Isaacs, I mean, do you, uh, what do you think of the argument that uh, people in the Scotiabank Arena say will have to wear proper masks and yeah, they can take them off uh, if they're, uh, you know, eating something, but for most of the time they're going to be wearing masks? Libby, the decision is shocking. 
It's disgusting. It's disrespectful to the restaurant industry. And Mr. Phillips' comment about how they can still manage social distancing in an 18,000 square foot uh, people stadium is nonsense. It's not true. People will not have their masks on hardly ever. They'll be eating and drinking the whole game. We have to turn our music down in our restaurants so people don't talk loudly. You're going to have people screaming in the stadium. It's absolute nonsense. We have supported the government for the last 18 months at our own expense. We have spent millions of dollars in PPE and various other protocols that we've done, and we left out in the cold after this period of time with no no information on the subsidy programs being extended and with no explanation as to how sitting 300 people, remember that our patios are still socially distanced right now. How can anybody explain that? And we've asked the question and not one person can give us an answer. How? Just tell us how. Let's bring in Selena Blanchard. Selena, what's your reaction to this? Well, I totally understand what Tony and Larry are saying. I totally agree with them. It's extremely frustrating. Um, It doesn't make any sense. Um, I'd like to have some clarification as to why they feel sitting shoulder to shoulder with strangers in an arena is better or safer uh, than sitting at a restaurant with your family and your friends. With the provincial government, it'd be great if Doug Ford realized that If he's all for business, then treat everybody fairly. At the same level, um, you should all the capacity restrictions should be lifted and, you know, allow for a, a, you know, a fair market for everyone. Tony, what do you want to see in the next number of weeks? No doubt the cues and the serves of the federal government should come out and hopefully any day. At the provincial level, capacity is the way to go. And I do know they're going to lift them, but it has to be done sooner than later. And then the road to recovery and also to regain the trust of the constituents and the industry as a whole, they need to look at bringing down some chronic expenses. And beverage alcohol pricing has always been a priority for the industry. We've been asking for it, and they need to pay attention to that now and come to the point where the industry is getting revolt like we are since the weekend. Larry, last word to you. The last thing I would to add is that there's a lot of loans that, that were taken out by all the restaurants to survive over this period of time, and those loans are coming due now. We need those loans either written off or certainly delayed for a number of years, along with the rent and payroll subsidies need to come back at a higher level at 75% on each, and the, and the capacity's got to go. The capacity has to go immediately. Larry Isaacs, president of the Firkin Group of Pubs. Tony Ellenis, president and CEO of the Ontario Restaurant Hotel and Motel Association. And Selena Blanchard, owner of Lambretta Pizzeria in Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Eileen called from Brampton about her experience as a nurse and the hours she's worked. I worked at the hospital in Brampton for 32 years. And when they talk about full-time and part-time, I was part-time who wanted to be part-time. But the idea of full-time didn't exist then either. They had the part-time and the casual people. Now, I, I wasn't in the nursing end of it. I was in the registration end of it. But the unions didn't seem any different on any of the other things. The temporary or the part-time ran the place. You had very few full-time It was to their benefit. It always was and always will be. Steve from Markham called on Wednesday when gas price expert Dan McTagg joined Fight Back to talk about record high gas prices. Years ago, uh, the difference between regular gas and premium was six, seven, eight cents, right? Yep. A liter. Why is it up to 40 cents a liter now? Steve, excellent question. Excellent question. uh, Sorry. And if you go up to Fort Perry... It's less than half of what these idiots in the city are charging. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Bill in Toronto, who thought it was unfair that sports venues and theaters were allowed to reopen to full capacity before restaurants. It seems that the government's pretty cozy with big business. You know, Costco didn't get affected, Walmart really didn't get affected, and they just keep going after the small business. And quite frankly, I've gotten so used to not going out to dinner or not going out to a bar. You know, I've become a bit of a chef now. <laughs> well, that's good. I'm, I'm quite content to stay at home. So it's the double whammy. Even if they open these things wide up, I don't know whether people are going to come back in droves. But the government can let 16,000 into the ACC Centre and they can't open restaurants? That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.